in the name of our risen Lord. Amen. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Yesterday, All Saints Day, was a day to remember the saints in the narrower sense of the word, those who were exemplary Christians and the lights of their generation. Today on All Souls, we remember all the faithful departed, those who have died in the communion of your church and those whose faith is known to you alone. We remember family and friends whom we have lost as we did in the chapel garden this morning, our personal saints, if you will. As we remember them, as we feel once again the loss of them, we may well indeed feel death's sting and death's victory. Death is brutal anguish. May Sarton, in her poem, All Souls, which we read this morning, asks, did someone say that there would be an end, an end, oh, an end, to love and mourning? On the Feast of All Souls, it can seem that there is no end to love and mourning. And yet Paul says, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? He says that death will be swallowed up in victory. He says the dead will be raised, all our loved ones who have died and all of us. So say all of our readings today. And so we proclaim daily in our creeds, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. In the face of the sting and the victory of death, how can we believe this doctrine this doctrine that of all days we most long to believe. Paul's argument throughout the 15th chapter of the first letter of the Corinthians is a response to this question, an impassioned argument for the resurrection of the dead. He puts this argument at the end of his letter to the Corinthians. It's the summation of all that he has taught them, indeed, of the whole Christian faith, so much so that he tells them that if the resurrection of the dead is not true, then their faith is in vain. His argument is founded on a simple premise. The resurrection of the dead is true because God is God. If God really is God, then God is more powerful than any other force in the universe, more good than any evil could be, more loving than any possible separation from God could be. And if all of this is true, then God must and can and does triumph over death. Death cannot possibly be stronger than God if God is God. No, God is stronger than death. And because God was in Jesus Christ, Paul's argument goes on, reconciling the world to God's self, then it was impossible for Jesus Christ to stay dead. It was impossible for death to defeat him. 
Instead, he rose on the third day. And because we are in Christ, the argument continues, because we are one body with him, his resurrection is the first fruits that will lead to our own. For as all die in Adam, all will be made alive in Christ Jesus, says Paul. For Christ must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy is death. Because God is God, because Jesus Christ is God incarnate, because we are one with Christ, because he was crucified and raised, so we too will be raised on the last day. Now Paul struggles to describe what this resurrection will be like, and that's not because he's lacking in rhetorical gifts. It's simply that the resurrection of the dead is far beyond anything we can explain or imagine, much less achieve. In this mystery, we are talking about something that does not come from the world that we know, the world in which death certainly seems to have the victory. No, the resurrection is God's pure gift of grace, as gracious as God creating the world out of nothing or redeeming us from sin in Jesus Christ. It is a gift that breaks in on us from outside of all of our experiences. And this is one reason why Christians cannot believe in the immortality of the soul, because this implies that there's something inherent in us that lasts forever once our body dies. No, we are creatures. We completely die. Dust we are, and to dust we will return. And then, miracle upon miracles, God raises us, body and soul, a pure, unimaginable gift of God's love. And at this point in 1 Corinthians, Paul pretty much gives up on explanation and argument and turns to pure poetry and says, listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound. We will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So maybe we should leave it there, except that even though words for the resurrection of the dead to describe this destiny are inadequate, there are a few things we can say about this blessed state. First, the metaphors that Paul uses to describe it, the seed sown in dishonor and raised in glory, the perishable body putting on imperishability, suggest two truths existing in tension. First, we shall be changed. What we will be in the resurrection is very different, incomprehensibly different, from what we are now. But second, there will be some thread of continuity. There is a relationship between the seed that is sown and the fruit that is born. There is a link between the perishable and the imperishable body. So in some mysterious sense, even in the resurrection, it will still somehow be us in our particularity. Who we are, the particular, irreplaceable human beings that we are, matters to God, matters eternally, and will not be swept away in the resurrection. Second thing we can say is that the resurrection life is communal. Nowhere in the Bible is eternal life with God described as a private experience. 
Instead, the images are of a heavenly banquet, of a new heaven and a new earth, of the holy city coming down from heaven, all images that insist that we are raised as one body, as one company, as one communion with all the saints. We will not be alone, but we will be all together around God's throne. And this means, as I dare to believe, that we will be reunited with those we love on the other side of the grave, because we will all be together around God's throne. But now, as glorious as that reunion will be, that is not the main event. Because the main event, the main thing about the resurrection life is that it is communion with God. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. Now we know only in part, but then we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. Eternal life consists of nothing more and certainly nothing less than seeing, loving, praising, serving, and enjoying God forever. And this communion with God is not a static state. It is an endless journey, more and more into the heart of God. Because although we will see God face to face, we will never reach the bottom of all the wonder of who God is. And so C.S. Lewis, at the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia, says that all that we know about God here on earth is really only the cover of the book and the first page. And the whole rest of the story that unfolds in heaven will be page after page, each one more wonderful than the last, going on without end. But where does all this talk of heaven leave us right now, here at VTS on November 2nd, 2016? Is it just irresponsible? Is it just pie in the sky to dream of heaven in the midst of the groaning of earth? Paul doesn't think so. And so at the end of his flight of poetry, which we heard today, he lands with his feet squarely here on earth, right where we in the Corinthians live. He says, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's important to recognize that eschatology, this doctrine of the last things, is really the most this-worldly of Christian doctrines because it's precisely our hope of heaven that sends us back to this earth. It's precisely because we long for a new heaven and a new earth that we are inspired to work and pray for the coming of that vision here on this earth. It's because we envision gathering in a heavenly banquet around God's throne with the whole company of saints that we're driven to strive to nourish our communities here on earth. And the promise that somehow our particularity, our personhood, endures even into the resurrection life means that our lives matter here. It matters how we live. It matters how we love. For none of it is lost. All is gathered up, transformed, and brought to fulfillment in the resurrection. At the beginning of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, Paul had raised the specter that the Corinthians' faith was in vain if they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. But now, he says, because of the truth of the resurrection, your faith and your labor is not 
in vain. Or as the Gospel of John puts it, eternal life is not just something off in the future. Because the resurrection of Christ breaks in on our present, eternal life has already begun, and we live in it any time we live in the love that partakes of God's triune being, which is love. Because the resurrection of the dead is true, we do not labor in vain, and we do not do so alone. The risen Christ is with us from now until the end of the age. And on this day in particular, we remember as well that we pray and labor in the company of the whole communion of saints. For these feasts of all saints and all souls are thin times. They're times when the boundary between the living and the dead is porous and we feel the presence of the dead close to us. And we remember that because of the resurrection of the dead, the dead are not just gone. We do grieve for them, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope, because we know they are with us still. They surround us like a great cloud of witnesses. And so it was fitting that this morning in the chapel garden, we remembered our dead, and we commissioned those in this community who are going to North Dakota to stand with those opposing the pipeline going through sacred lands of the Native people. Because we go forth into our lives and our ministries, our struggles and joys, supported by the saints who surround us, by their courage, by their witness, by their love. They cheer us on as we run the race that is set for us. Until at last, we share in their eternal joy around God's throne and before God's face, where death is at last and forever swallowed up in victory. <laughs>